So my hope today is to preach and teach at the pace of grace, knowing that it would be impossible for us to exhaust everything this wonderful passage in the book of Revelation is inviting us to consider. I would rather say a few things well today and more clearly that would encourage all of us to think more about heaven, our inheritance, the bigness of the gospel, the glory of the God of all grace who has promised to complete the good work he not only began in us individually, but the good work he has begun in his world. And to kind of get there this morning, to kind of further frame how a Bible conference about heaven, uh, to, to think about the, the benefit, the merit, the focus of it, I want to do th two things very quickly. One, I want to read a couple of verses from a hymn that actually, when it was first written, was not written as a Christmas hymn. You know, there's some hymns we typically think of singing as a part of the season of Advent or when we celebrate the birth of Jesus. And this hymn is one that we tend to sing during Advent, but unfortunately only during Advent. And it's the hymn that Isaac Watts wrote called Joy to the World. And I'm not going to ask you to sing Joy to the World this morning, but I want you to listen to some of the words of this great hymn because they're talking about what we're talking about. Isaac Watts, when he wrote this great hymn, he was meditating upon the promises of God and their ultimate fulfillment when Jesus comes back to finish making all things new. And this hymn, Joy to the World, is a great, I would consider it a missionary hymn because it says the more full our hearts are with the beauty of Jesus, the more our hearts are smitten with, taken with, captured with an understanding of the gospel of God's grace, the more we are aware of the kingdom of God the less we will live for ourselves, the less our fears will cripple us, the less our anxieties will overwhelm us, the more we will be free to show up in our world as servants of the living God because we know where history is going. I'm sure you remember these words, but just listen with me um, to the great affirmation of joy to the world. Then I'm gonna read one more Old Testament passage then we'll pick up where we left off last night. And I promise, as I promised you last night, you'll be out of here on time, even as you were out of here last night on time. Good promise, right? Amen? All right, good. Remember this great hymn, Joy to the World. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and heaven and nature sing. Let me stop there for a moment. Isaac Watts is inviting believers to consider, look at this, Jesus, the promised one, has come into the world. And may our hearts be glad, but also may heaven and earth, may nature itself be glad. Why? Because Jesus' work isn't just about taking us to heaven one day when we die, but bringing heaven to earth one day. He goes on. Joy to the earth where we live. The Savior reigns. See, the Bible does not tell a story of one day Jesus will become King of kings and Lord of lords. The Bible celebrates that because 
He did come the first time and was raised from the dead. Right now, Jesus is already King of kings and Lord of lords. His, his kingdom is broken in, but we wait for the fullness of the kingdom. This is what Isaac Watts is saying. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. Love this next verse, verse 3. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. When did thorns first start infesting the ground? Well, after Adam and Eve rebelled and the curse came upon all of nature, all of mankind, we know that we have been living under the tragedy of the fall. But Isaac Watts is reminding us, because Jesus has come, the curse has been broken, and one day every implication or every broken thing that sin and death brought will be gone. This is what he, why he goes on to say, let thorns no more infest the ground. He comes, Jesus has come to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. That means that Everything that went wrong with image bearers of God, everything that went wrong with God's world, everything that got broken about Eden, Jesus has come to put straight. And, and that's what we said last night about the nature of hope. The Bible defines hope basically as us coming alive to God's future and remembering it into our present. Odd language, but let me try to connect that. Let me ask you this. Have any of you ever been to Switzerland before? Raise your hand. Okay, I remember as a child always wanting to go to Switzerland. I don't know why. Maybe it was through eating Hershey bars and watching Heidi movies. I'm not sure, but there was, there was an inner yodel in me that, that begged for release. And I remember just a lot of my life thinking, I bet Switzerland is awesome. When I finally went to Switzerland for the first time in the fall of 1984, when I got off that train, we flew into, inter, we flew into Zurich, trained down to Interlaken. I was leading a two-week Bible conference. I never will forget getting off the train, and whatever I was thinking about what Switzerland was going to be, it was so inadequate to capture what I experienced that day in downtown Interlaken. It was the fall of the year. The hills around the Lake of Brienz were just screaming with so many colors of the change of the fall. Fresh little snow had fallen upon the ridge. It was absolutely glorious. It was a day the Germans called, called, the Germans called a fern, and it means that the air is so clear you can hear for 10 miles. You can see. I felt in my core this real sense of, my imagination was not big enough. I undersold what Switzerland was going to be like. I only knew Switzerland from afar. That's why I've been back eight times to that country. I love it. I bring up Switzerland right now because Isaac watched his heart through the eye of faith was alive to what Jesus is doing right now, even though we cannot fully see it. Isaac watched his heart was staggered and encouraged with the reality of one day God will complete his story. And that's why his hymn is so joy 
producing. It's why he sings joy to the world, joy to your heart and my heart. Last verse, not only is Jesus, you know, in the process now of reversing the effects of the curse, and one day, as we'll see this morning, the curse will be completely lifted. The last verse of this great hymn, speaking of Jesus, Isaac Watts, again, in the great hymn, Joy to the World, he says, he rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love and wonders of his love and wonders, wonders, wonders of his love. What a great way to begin our morning pondering more of the riches of heaven. It's all about who Jesus is, what he's done for us. It's all about what Jesus wants us to understand right now today as we yearn for the fullness of heaven. It's all about our experiencing this morning that not just Isaac was, but you and me can, can read the words of the prophets and come alive. In fact, here's the one Old Testament passage I want to briefly read, and then we'll jump into our text. Again, this is a passage, unfortunately, that we sometimes think about only during our Advent season or Christmas season, but it has its parallel and fulfillment in how we think about heaven. Do you remember these wonderful words from the prophet Isaiah? I'm reading from Isaiah chapter 11 at verse 6, beginning at verse 6. I love this image, and it's profound. Um, Isaiah says, speaking of the coming of the Messiah, the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, and the calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest now, here's the, here's the key point of this whole imagery of the animal world and the human world engaging the animal world being absolutely perfect again as it was in Eden. Listen to this verse, Isaiah 11:9. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. Now, listen to the punchline. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Those verses are not just good poetry. Those verses are not just what we would call refrigerator verses. Do you have refrigerator verses in your house? Some verses that find their way magnetically connected to the front of the refrigerator. You want to remember a verse? Or, no, they're, they're, they're not just refrigerator decoration. They are life transforming. Dear, dear, dear friends, to talk about heaven is to understand that, that the life in the Garden of Eden was not a mistake it wasn't just a pause. It was the beginning of a wondrous story that our God, who was never lonely, set into place to one day redeem a family from every single nation that has ever drawn oxygen and to plant them finally one day when the true king returns to finish his work in this very world that we live in right now. It will be glorified. I don't know what the final dimensions of the new earth are going to be like. We don't need to get out our measuring stick, but we do need to know this. All of history is leading to the day when the knowledge of God's glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. 
Now, even that image, how do water, when you say, when you say the waters cover the sea, let me ask you, how thoroughly does water cover the sea? What would be the word? Completely. In other words, that's the point. In other words, where the, the language of Scripture sometimes confuses us, but it's meant to thrill us. God has promised you and me, we are a part of a story. He has written us into his story to be characters and carriers. As a character in the story of God, we are those that are made by him and for him. And he loves us and he's pursuing us. And through the work of Jesus, he is succeeding. And as characters in his story, we become carriers. We become neighbors. We become those that that are not ruled by fear, but by the one who right now is making all things new. Let's pray briefly now. The Father would just stretch our imagination. That far beyond making it to Switzerland one day, we will understand our true citizenship, even right now, is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there. Amen? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank you for the gift already of a new family I have found in Panama City. I thank you for my precious brothers and sisters that have been so kind to me just in these couple of days of getting to know each other. And Lord, the good news is this, that, that friendships that we share in this room will go on forever. In fact, Father, heaven is so big and glorious. You tell us that one day we will finally be freed from all of our limitations we will see Jesus as he is and we will be made like him. We will be as lovely as you, Lord Jesus. We'll be as loving as you, Lord Jesus. And we will know our forever family, this glorious family from, from every period of history, redeemed by grace alone, redeemed by the finished work of Jesus. And, and Lord, we will, we will live in perfect society. We will live creatively. We will not just be gathered just to sing great hymns and eat food together as we Christians often think of the chief end of man is eating and singing. Oh, those are good things, Father. But the plan you have for us is forever filling the new earth with your glory. The family will be complete. We won't live as husbands and wives. But Lord, that family is going to be without number because it's so big, because the gospel is so wonderful. Would you teach us more about that today, Father? As always, I pray you protect these who are here this morning from anything I teach that is not anchored in the Bible. But I pray equally, Lord, for not just those who are here, but those that might listen to some of these recorded conversations that, where, where Lord, we are speaking truth where we are today. And then tomorrow morning as we gather to worship you, uh, where, where we're speaking truth, Lord, may it change us. May it gladden us. May, may it uh, topple our fears. May it release us to be a people overwhelmed with the glory and the grace of our God. To this end we pray in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Well, once again, I invite you to look at your notes. Uh, if you were not here last night, I hope you can find an extra copy of the notes or look on with a neighbor for right now. And what we did last night was we started with looking at this painting in the lower left-hand corner, painting that was uh, commissioned. I commissioned an artist in our church back in Franklin, Tennessee to create. 
It's seven feet wide, three feet tall, and it's right now used around the world by all kinds of Christians uh, to whom I've sent the uh, JPEG file. It's, it's, a, it's a marvelous painting, and it tells God's story, which is what we're studying this weekend. Uh, these four panels, they tell the story that begins in Genesis and, and is finally and fully um, revealed in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And we talked about how important it is for us to become more familiar with the first two chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, and become more familiar with the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, because they show us life as God has designed it to be and secured it to be one day all because of Jesus. That gives me a chance to highlight another feature in the painting that you can't see real well in your little painting, but notice these four panels, they are sewn together. If you just kind of look, you'll see, well, there is kind of a, there's a, there's a, there's a binding there. And the artist, David Arms, did something marvelous. He said, Scotty, the one connecting reality of all four panels of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration is the work of Jesus. That's a scarlet thread that connects all four panels. And that reminds us that, that the primary and really the only real hero in the Bible from beginning to end is Jesus himself. Jesus, a member of the Trinity, uh, forever God with the Father and Spirit came into this world and lived a life of perfect obedience for us as our substitute and died upon the cross, taking the judgment we deserve. I wish I'd understood that earlier, even as a young Christian. For a lot of years as a young Christian, I primarily thought of Jesus as a model to follow more so than a substitute to trust. Now, are we called to follow Jesus? Absolutely. He says to us, follow me. But before we follow him, we need to understand that according to the Bible, Jesus came first and foremost to be our substitute. Uh, he is the second Adam, where the first Adam failed us as our representative in the Garden of Eden. Jesus, God the Son, the Son of God, came into the world, and, and, and even before he died for us, he lived for us. I didn't understand this, like I said, until much later after becoming a Christian. Jesus, to say that Jesus fulfilled the law for us is to say that Jesus obeyed God for us as our substitute. We're more familiar with the fact that he died for us upon the cross, taking the judgment we deserve. But you see, the two go together. And, and we, we, we should not just live with the notion of half of a gospel, which is forgiveness. Is forgiveness awesome? Please say yes. That's a wonderful rhetorical question. But that's not all we get in Christ. We get the gift of God's perfect righteousness. Think about this. And this connects to where we'll be in our text this morning. Let's say when we break at about a little before 11 today, I know we will all turn into pumpkins at 11 a.m., so you will be out of here somewhere between 1045 and 11. Let's say you were going to go with some friends today to your favorite sushi restaurant in Panama City or tofu restaurant, whichever is your you know, favorite food. But you're going to a restaurant that only takes cash, not plastic, not a check. A lot of restaurants are like that, right? So one of you has to stop by your ATM machine in order that your carload of good friends that have just been pondering heaven, someone will have cash to pay for the sushi. Well, one of you goes up to your favorite ATM machine, puts in your card, and you get out your 
two $20 bills or whatever else, and you get your little receipt because you don't want to leave it there. And before you crumple it up, you look down and you realize, huh, according to this receipt, I have $392,012,015,000 in my balance. Because you have been pastored so well by Ron Brown, you are of noble character. You don't start pushing buttons to get more money out. You go into the bank or you call the bank president. I think there's been a mistake here. According to your little slip of paper, I have a balance of over $300 billion, to which the bank president does a little search and says, oh, no, uh, um, a, very, uh, a very generous entity has deposited in your account $300 plus billion plus and said there's more where that came from. Well, here's where the analogy breaks down because that fuels our greed. What would you do with that much money? But here's what you need to understand. Far better than that much money. God has put in your account the righteousness of Jesus. You're not just forgiven. You are positively, legally considered an heir of Jesus' righteousness. This is why last night you heard me say things like this. If, if, you're, if you're a Christian not even a real mature Christian, if you're simply someone that's received the free gift of eternal life, you've trusted in Jesus plus nothing for your salvation, right now God loves you as much as he loves Jesus. Now let me ask you this, why don't we feel that most of the time? Well, first of all, because it's not based on feeling. Hallelujah, it's not based on feeling. I'm so glad that a legal, a legal reality has more power than one I simply feel, right, you know? Martin Luther was once asked, the great reformer, do you love God? Luther laughed. He said, love God? Sometimes I don't understand him. I think he's my enemy. Now, Luther was saying, life in Christ is not bound up with he loves me, he loves me not, or what I feel. It's bound up with legal reality. It's bound up with the good news today that as we talk about heaven, we're not looking for a metaphor to live by. That's why the apostle Paul said, if Jesus literally was not raised from the dead, we of all people are most to be pitied. See, a good thing about, a great thing about the Christian faith is it's not just one of, many, one of many spiritual stories we grab a hold of to try to make sense of life. If it's not true, let's go fishing right now. I'm going fishing this afternoon, but I'm going to wait after we study the Bible. But if, if, if the gospel's not true, you know, why, what are you, what are we sitting in these wooden chairs together? It is news, it is good news, and it's true news. And that's why we want to be more aware of every good thing we have in Christ now and every good thing we will have forever when our true king comes back to finish the story. There is no greater freedom, there is no greater hope than this good news. Now, once again, a too long introduction filled with good news as we go back now to our outline. So if you would look with me now, um, last night we looked at uh, the beginning of this vision, the final and fullest vision of the fullness of heaven, the, the wonderful reality of, of the fact that when Christ comes back, all the promises of God will find their complete fulfillment. And we started last night looking at um, first thing that the apostle John saw in his vision of the life that is ours in Christ he saw new heaven and new earth because the first one had passed away, not, was, was not annihilated, but was transformed. See, the Bible uses the imagery of purification. Um, 
Just like right now, uh, uh, by God's spirit, there's stuff being burned up in your life and my life that, that, uh, that needs to be purified. And so all by God's grace, one day the similar parallel happens in this world. When Christ returns, he will not replace this world. He will purify it. And all the promises of our final living place will come to reality. Second thing, we looked at this big picture of the, of the bride. Here comes the bride. And, uh, and Jesus is more looking forward to his second coming than we are. In fact, I'll remember when I tell this story as part of the text. One of my favorite weddings I ever did in Nashville, Tennessee, was uh, when I first came to Nashville in 1979. I was a youth pastor at First Pres Nashville, a very formal, very traditional very wealthy, old Nashville, blue blood, Vanderbilt, kissed church. I'm the youth pastor. I used to perm my hair. So I'm, that's oversharing. You don't need to have that piece of information. But I'm as a young youth pastor doing my first wedding in this big, gorgeous sanctuary. And so I'm a little nervous because, you know, it's a very formal church and it's a Saturday night wedding. So everybody is dressed to the hilt. The wedding party is not just in tuxes, but everybody is, right? So I'm there, and, uh, and we come in, the, the groomsmen, we come in from the side in a very long aisle, and the bridesmaids come in, and I'm doing well. The mothers are seated and everything, okay, young youth pastor, first wedding, he's doing okay. And then the door open in the back, the doors open in the back, and this massive sanctuary that looked like a wedding cake itself, and the groom is standing right beside me, and as soon as those doors open and there is his bride on the arm of her dad, this groom beside me started running up the aisle towards her. What do you do in that moment as a young pastor in a very formal church where you think, I just lost my job? You know, <laughs> humility. No, I didn't think that more than a nanosecond. What I did do was hike up my robe, and I'll have the joy of preaching in a robe here tomorrow, by the way. Thank you very much, Ron. It's great memories. Grabbed up my robe, started running up the aisle and grabbed this young man to pull him back up to be with me. Now I'm thinking in that moment, do I make eye contact with the mothers? And I had found gospel courage to do that. And they both had tears in their eyes because they realized, look at how my son, look at how the man who loves my daughter pursues her. Friends, that's not a metaphor. That really happened to me. But let me tell you, far grander. That's Jesus coming back for you and me. As we talk about heaven, you have a king who lived for you and died for you, who loves you. Whether Wherever you are in your own faith story right now, whether you are someone that has believed the gospel since you were three or just beginning to say, can I really believe that stuff? This is what you need to hear. Jesus loves you. This we know because the Bible says it's so. And the Bible says so much more about his love than we typically think of. He's coming for us with joy. He loves us like that right now. And when he comes, this is what we inherit. We are a bride. We will live in a new earth together. Uh, number three, as we saw last night, we'll live in, a, in an eternity of fulfilled promises. Last night, we camped out on that picture of the tear-wiping hand of God. We'll say more about that in our final session today. But let's go ahead and look at number four. Now, the next text in our outline, Revelation 21, beginning at verses 9 and following. I'm going to read it. Uh, hang with me. There's some odd imagery here. And you might think, these are some weird words. John is seeing now more of the aspects of what's going to happen when Jesus comes back and we begin to enter in most fully 
uh, to the fullness of heaven. And number four is under this heading. Uh, we are destined for a world of reconciled, healed, perfect relationships. I've mentioned that twice, but consider what this looks like. So verse 9, Revelation 21. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came to me and said, Come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Stop there for a moment. Here's where we are in the story. John has already seen the bride of Christ in a broad sense. But now this angel is saying, I want you to see more clearly what the whole family of God really looks like. Because John, this is going to help you as a pastor in the Roman world that seems like is bent on destroying the church. You need to see the completed church so that you will have courage. So John is taken up to a high place, kind of given what we call that 40,000-foot view. And he began, he's going to tell us what he saw, but there's some real connections with the Old Testament that will make this not confusing to us, but very special as we think about who we are and where we're going. So he's being carried up away to a high place, and he now is seeing a picture of the completed family of God described as the new Jerusalem. Now, what I love about that is this. The old Jerusalem, the one that we think of in the Old Testament, it was never to be the final city of peace. It was meant to be, Jerusalem was meant to be an expression of, here's how God's story breaks into the world. It was God's commitment to have a people that would live among the nations to say, this is what it means to know the living God. This is what it means to be a light to the nations. Unfortunately, the old Jerusalem did not do a very good job of that. And you know what? She never ultimately could have done that job apart from the work of Jesus. So the language New Jerusalem is the true city of peace is coming to us, but the true city of peace is defined by the population, not by the skyscrapers. You'll see that. Notice what John does now as he describes the completed family of God, described in terms of the city of Jerusalem. Verse 11, he said, It's shown with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It... Again, he's, he's, he's looking at the bride of Christ, uh, this very diverse family together, and he's using descriptors from the Old Testament that have very special meaning. He goes on to describe it in terms of thinking about Jerusalem's temple. Look at verse 12. Yet this city, this population of the family of God, it had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. If you're confused right now, you're in good company. Let's just talk about the images there. 12 tribes of Israel... 12 apostles of the Lamb all together. Now, here's what we should be thinking about. If, you know, whatever else some of the imagery stands for, we're looking at one people, look, one people living together in perfect relationship. Earlier in John's book of Revelation, chapter 7, he had a vision of 
of the family of God coming towards him, first through the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he said, and then I looked and I saw a number that no one could count from every single race, tribe, tongue, and people group. John was given a picture of God at work in the world right now, redeeming people by his grace from every nation. Now he's seeing a picture of, and this is what it's going to look like when we actually live together in the new earth. There, there won't be, there won't be uh, converted Jews living way over there and then converted Gentiles living way over there. His, his imagery is really of reconciliation. I mean, a lot of us in this room have lived through tragic stories of racism, of division, of tribalism. We, we know our world is very divided, right? We, we know, you know, the wars and rumors of wars just to pick the fact that, that, that I, I want to win. I want my people, my culture to win. The Bible's saying we were never meant to live as enemies, but as families. And John says, look, I, I, I see a city. And, and it's the city that you want to live in because everybody loves everybody and there's still rich diversity there. Let's go on. So he sees this family uh, described in terms of Israel's temple, but now he goes even more specifically into into the real beauty of, of this people. Look at verse 15. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square. As long as it was wide, he measured the city with a rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length, as wide and as high as it is long. So John, right now, if, you are, you know, if you're someone unlike me, I could never on the SAT test figure out something looked like when it was folded up. But I can tell you this, what John's describing here is not a square, but a cube. He's describing a perfect cube. And it's a gigantic cube. It's like each one of these dimensions, if you just kind of took a stadia uh, in terms of the, uh, actually what the measurement of stadia is, which is about 600 feet, he's talking about 1,500 miles, okay? Now, the point is this, not an exact measurement, but it is so big, throw down your abacus. It's too big, you can't count it. Throw, throw, you know, this is, I'm seeing a giant cube that is this family of God, and he goes on, and he says, they, as a city people, uh, the, the, their walls are made of all these jewels. Uh, verse 18, the walls made of jasper, the city of pure gold is glass. Foundations of the city walls were decorated with all kinds of precious stones. First foundation, jasper. Second, sapphire, chalcedony, emerald, sardonyx, carnelian, chrysolite, a beryl, topaz, chrythophrase, jasneth, amethyst. Don't start looking for some correlation between every gemstone, what it means. Here's the picture. John has just described a part of Jerusalem's temple in an incredibly enormous fashion. The Holy of Holies in Israel's temple was the place where one man a year could go, the high priest. He would go there as a representative of the people of God. The high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he would offer the sacrifice for the nation, trusting God to be merciful. Here's what John is saying. Guess what? Our future is seen by the fact that the, the, the perfect Jew, the one true faithful man has gone before us. His name is Jesus. And because of the finished work of Jesus, heaven itself will be the Holy of Holies. There won't be insiders and outsiders. 
our experience will be every single one of us will know the Lord intimately, will know each other intimately, and we will, we will, you will know everybody in the family. Sometimes when I talk about heaven, people ask me very profound, important questions like this. Well, I know my friends in heaven. And I almost, well, you know, I never laugh because, uh, I mean, if I laugh, it's because the joy of the question is superseded by the reality. Absolutely, we will know each other. But you'll also know everybody else. I mean, in this room right now of what, maybe 75 of us or so, you'd say, you know, here are five of my closest friends in this room. Can you imagine everybody being your best friend? Can you imagine everybody delighting in you, enjoying you, wanting to be with you, being intrigued with you? No, you can't. Why? Because that's not the way our life works. Dear friends, this is what Jesus has won for us. We will be finally free. We will be with the whole family of God. And this is why John is writing these words that seem to contradict the early church's experience in the world. Indeed, every one of our relationships in the new earth will be intimate, joyful, and fulfilling. We will finally manifest the perfections of life within the Trinity. See, the, the perfect picture of relationship is in the Godhead. Uh, when you've heard me say that God was never lonely when he created the world, he wasn't lonely. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have lived in perfect relationship forever. And, and the beauty of, of what we long for will find its fulfillment one day. Let's look at number five. Uh, again, boy, like I said, we could spend a week on each one of these, but let's just uh, let's just look at the travel log of the big Switzerland here. Let's just uh, I should have mentioned earlier. You know, uh, I never tasted real chocolate until I got to Switzerland. I mentioned eating Hershey bars. First trip to Switzerland, we did a tour of the Kaye chocolate factory. All 25 of us. We did not know at the end of the tour. They said, "Come over here. You've got five minutes to go in this room. It's about the size of this room." They said. You can eat all the chocolate we make here for five minutes. You can't take anything out with you. But it's like I'm wondering, are there video cameras that are going to film each nation to see, you know, who tries to steal chocolate out of the room? But no, the point is this. When you walk through a Swiss chocolate factory, a Hershey bar is nothing more than a piece of wax. When you really experience more of the real thing. And, and you see, friends, there's so much of life in Christ we can experience now, even before this day. And to feast on the goodness of our God in our day, to give each other hope, you know, frees us like nothing else. That's why we look at number five of 10. What else does John see or would want us to understand about the life of heaven, uh, the fullness of heaven, a free gift to all of us, a world permeated with the presence and praise of God, uh, chapter 21 of Revelation, verse 22, John writes, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. All right, this is not a trick question, but let me ask you. Where did Adam and Eve go in the Garden of Eden to worship God? And what was the architecture of the worship center? And who defined the liturgy each time they met? I lied to you. That was three questions, not one. Let's just go back to the first question. Here's a question. Where did Adam and Eve go in the Garden of Eden to worship God? Anywhere and everywhere. Thank you. Ding, 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 ding. The right answer was this was this. You see, before sin and death fractured the world, 
before there needed to be the temple in Israel where God's people could go and through God's provision, through temple sacrifice, could find, you know, the safety of saying, Lord, indeed, you have judged these animals in our place and now we, we hear you and we hear your word. Before anything got broken, God's first son and daughter worshiped God by everything they did everywhere they were. The life that God designed for Adam and Eve was, was a perfect communion with him and, and their commission to fill the earth with God's glory, their commission to till the earth, to have dominion, not to dominate, but have dominion to be stewards. All of it revealed God's glory. God's presence was everywhere. God's presence was thick, unbroken. What would be a parallel to even wrap our minds around this? If for those of you that are married or have ever been married, here's an image. Or just think, no, let's even know more about the marriage metaphor. Think about your favorite relationship, favorite human relationship you've ever experienced in this life. Even your most favorite relationship looks like this. Sometimes you're so deeply connected emotionally, mentally, you just enjoy being together. You hang out, you can work, you can play, you can just talk and you think, this is so life-giving just to be with you. But I am sure you would agree with me, even your best relationships at times, you get disconnected and you think, oh, you know, I'd like to trade you in for a Diet Coke right now. You know, we irritate each other. Uh, we, we, we bump into one another. The parallel is this. For Adam and Eve, life in the Garden of Eden and with each other was everything is right. Whether we're working, whether we're playing, whether we're walking with God in the cool of the day, because we are in perfect relationship with him, our relationship rocks. Everything is right. Dear friends, this is what John is wanting us to understand when he said, I looked in the new earth for a temple. Because the temple was a very key part of Israel's worship, right? The temple is just so wonderful. But then he has this great answer. Guess what? There's no temple because God is the temple. What does temple really mean in the Bible? Temple was never about stones. Uh, temple was a way of saying, where can I find sanctuary? See, in the Garden of Eden, the whole of Eden, the whole of the first world was sanctuary, meaning God's presence was enjoyed everywhere. John is saying, if our, here's what's going to be heavenly about heaven. Our relationship with God and one another is going to be so restored. We won't need a building. We, we, won't, we, we won't have religious life, and then secular life. Can you imagine in the new earth really believing that when you're fishing, reeling in giant gator trout, that is just as much an act of holiness as singing the name of God? Amen, Bill, right? See, all of life is meant to be enjoyed. We who grew up in the Presbyterian Church know that the first question and answer of the catechism is what? What's the chief end of man? Chief end of man is to glorify God and Enjoy him forever. Why don't, we en why don't we enjoy him more now in everything that we do? Well, because we're filled with unbelief. We, 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 you know, we, we're still confused. Dear friends, what John is saying here in the vision of heaven is one day we will enjoy God fully, everywhere, all the time. And, and heaven, as we're going to see after our break, is not going to be one giant praise gathering. I used to think, again, as a very young Christian, had, you know, where these images come from when you're a child, you, you wonder. I used to think that here's what heaven's going to be. 
a gigantic gathering of the whole family of God, everybody wearing a white robe, and we all have harps, and we're singing all the time. Just a big hymn sing. And maybe there were seasons in my life that that would have been attractive to kind of some of the brokenness I was living through. But friends, our life in eternity is going to look a lot more like the life Adam and Eve enjoyed in Eden. All of life. Animals will be in the new earth. Animals won't die. Now, on break, you don't need to ask me, will my cocker spaniel be in heaven, Scotty? Is it true all dogs go to heaven? You know, I'm not going to touch any question like that. I am going to say, God never created something he doesn't delight in. And I think Isaiah's imagery of the wolf and the lamb laying down together, that's not just a Hallmark card. I think all of life as we know it. You see, when you go to a beautiful place like Switzerland, or in fact, tell me real quick like this for our first break. What is... Name out loud, what's one or two of the most beautiful places you've ever been in the world? Where would it be? Just tell me. I love hearing all these words come out. Where? Yes, I was there a month ago. I agree. You're fishing there and whale are breaching and otters are breaking open shells on their chest and eagles are coming down. You're thinking, is this Orlando? Is this a section of Disney World or something? Is this really happening? Or is this? Every place you've been where you see the good, the true, and the beautiful, it's connecting you to this story. Why is it beautiful? Because it reminds you of the God who is beautiful. Why is it for me it was Switzerland? For you it may have been France. It may have been, it may have been a sunset on Holiday Isle. It doesn't have to be some grand place you pay a lot of money to get there. But what is stirring in your heart about the good, the true, and the beautiful, first of all, is God is beautiful. God is good. God is truth. And we will fully enjoy that one day. You know what? I think we're about time for our break. I'd like to take a break. We're going to come back, and we're going to fill out as much of our last 45 minutes as we can. But can I just pray a brief moment, and then Archbishop Ron will tell us, I love calling him that, uh, what our 12-minute break will look like. I'm betting it's going to be behind those hidden doors right there. So, uh, Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the Bible. Lord, thank you. The Bible is not so much a book of rules to obey as a Savior to trust. And we thank you, Lord, that just in a very brief Bible conference, we can begin to think bigger, better, more faithful thoughts about Jesus, about what it means to know you, about your love, about heaven itself. Help us, Lord. Thank you for this day. Thank you for the sun breaking through the beautiful glass of these stained glass remembrance. Uh, stained glass windows that reminds us that this is what it means to be the people of God. We're, we're broken people, we're broken pieces of glass that are knit together that the Son of God might show his light through us. Oh Lord, thank you for treats now. Thank you for another hour of Bible study in a few moments. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.